Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. You ever have those moments where the, the Venn diagram of, yeah, the Venn diagram of heaven and earth, and you feel like you're more in that overlapping space? Um, man, we don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be great. And it's good to get a taste of it together, worshiping with the people of God. We're also connected to another group. I mentioned a few months ago uh, that there's a smaller EPC church up in Skyatook. Uh, that is without a pastor at this time, and so they have been connecting with us digitally for the sermon portion of their worship every Sunday since then, and uh, they are still connecting with us. We almost lost them when we told them we were going to start the book of Revelation, but uh, they decided to stick it out with us, and so I just want to give another shout out to you this morning, let you know we're praying for you, uh, that God will continue to grow uh, your church spiritually through this season, and it's a joy to share God's Word together. So, If you've ever ridden a roller coaster, you know that after you leave the station, usually you kind of go and you do a 180, and then you start the climb on the first big hill, right? You're climbing to the top. You know that the greatest adventure is ahead and the wildest portion of the ride, and you're sort of anticipating it. And that is where we are in the book of Revelation right now. We're still in the safe zone, right? Things haven't gotten wild yet. We know it's coming at the end of chapter 5. When the scroll is open and the seal is broken, that's when it gets really crazy, okay? But for right now, we're still in that zone where some people are willing to preach these passages. And uh, this morning, we're looking at specifically the messages from Jesus dictated to John for the churches in ancient Asia Minor. Uh, This section grounds us in the reality that this wild, prophetic, apocalyptic vision was written to real people in real time and real places facing real challenges. It grounds the word in that. And these Christians were facing intense persecution on top of the normal challenges and temptations and pressures of life in a fallen world. And John shares this vision of what he has seen and what he has heard to encourage these believers to be faithful to the finish. And so this section really starts at the end of chapter 1, where Pastor Dan left off last week. Chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there are a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation, but none perhaps as important as the number seven. The entire book is structured around sevens. We see sevens everywhere. And seven is simply the number of perfection or completeness in contrast to six, which is incompleteness or lack of perfection. We all know the famous 666, and we'll get to that later and what that may mean. But six is incompleteness or worldly. Seven is completeness or heavenly. And so there are seven churches, seven spirits, stars, and lampstands, seven seals and bowls and trumpets, seven heads and eyes and horns, seven heavenly blessings or liturgies. There are multiples of seven that come into play, like 14 and 28. This whole book unfolds around the idea of seven. And so the seven lampstands simply represent 
the seven churches. Now this image makes sense because John would have recalled the teaching of Jesus that he heard live in real time on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. One doesn't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he commissioned us. He says, you're not the big L light, but you're little L lights. And so this image of the church as a lampstand was simple and it makes sense. Now the seven stars represent messengers. This word in the original language, it could refer to an angelic messenger or simply a human messenger. We don't always know. Typically, this word in the book of Revelation refers to angelic messengers. So these seven stars that Jesus holds in his hands are seven angels that have been specifically assigned over these churches. You know, we all have this sort of idea of a guardian angel, if you will. And so it seems we don't know exactly what it means, but these churches each have angels assigned to them that are leading and guiding and and certainly protecting the church. So chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In John's vision, Jesus is not outside of the church looking in. He's not looking at the church. He is positioned in the middle of the church. And this is a significant detail. We're going to come to this later because we're going to encounter a church where Jesus is, in fact, on the outside looking in. But from here, we see the image of Jesus standing in the middle of the churches, the risen Lord, clothed in royal priestly garments, just like we talked about last week, as divine as the Ancient of Days, infinitely wise and holy, powerful, full of grace and truth, with piercing eyes and a thundering voice saying to the church, don't be afraid. I've overcome your greatest enemy. There is more to life than meets the eye. I have overcome death, hell, and the grave. I hold the keys. I am alive. Look to me as the center of your renewed vision for this life and the one to come. And just as it was true years ago, Jesus stands with his bride today and he is at the center of the church or he is supposed to be. That is his rightful position. In the middle of these churches, Jesus delivers seven messages to John, one for each church. Now, these messages share more in common with prophetic oracles of the Old Testament than they do the New Testament letters. The language is striking and vivid and brings incredible challenge as well as comfort. The common burden of each message is that these churches will overcome the evil one and the seductive influences of the world that lure our hearts away from Christ and his body. And there's one consistent starting place for overcoming, and that is having a clear vision. That's the starting point. Having a theological vision, a renewed vision of the world, to see the present in light of the future, to see the present in light of unseen present realities, to lift our eyes and to see that there's more to life than what it seems. And isn't that the common theme in so many books and films. This idea as humans, we long, we say there must be something better than this. Amen? We hope, we know, but but humans, we hope and we long for something more than this world in its current condition. The foundation for overcoming the dark side of this fallen world is theological vision. 
to see that there really is indeed more. There is something more real than the realest thing we've ever experienced that is happening and will continue. Now, these messages to the churches, they have a remarkable resemblance to royal edicts that were sent out by Persian kings and Roman governors at this time. These edicts were rarely sent to the whole kingdom. They were more local and specific. They would praise citizens for the good that they were doing. They would criticize them for behavior and actions which needed to be corrected. This was followed by a promise of consequences if they did not change and promised of new prosperity if they did. The edict often began with, I know, I see what you're doing. I see your actions. I see what is happening in that place. And that language is repeated in the message to each of the seven churches. I know, primarily, I know your deeds. Again, these seven messages to seven churches were because the number seven refers to completeness. And so while each message is targeted and contextualized, Truly, each message is for all the churches. It's designed to encompass all of the churches. There were more, more than seven churches in this region. These were just picked out as particularly important ones. The message really was for all churches and truly for us today because the, the issues that are highlighted are many of the same struggles that the church has in every time and place in history. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to focus most of my time on the last of the seven messages, the last of the seven churches. I want to quickly kind of highlight uh, the main idea behind those others, because otherwise, how do you pick and choose? That would have added six more messages to a 14-week series. That's 20 weeks, and some of you would have loved it, and we would have lost some of you. So it is what it is. There's a lot of material out there about these messages to the churches, because they're good, and they're important and relevant. But here's my attempt at a summary. So the first church is Ephesus. This one probably is familiar to many of you. To remember your first love is the heartbeat of that message. The greatest danger for this church was legalism. It says they were doing the right things. In fact, they had good doctrine, but their hearts were not captured by the gospel. Their hearts were not in it. And so the danger was this sort of legalism of checking off all the right boxes and doing the right things without their hearts being in it. The message to the church at Smyrna is to be faithful under pressure. They were perhaps facing even worse persecution, and the greatest danger for them was apostasy, was to walk away from the faith, to give up under the pressure of what was happening around them. And we continue to see that in our world today, a growing category of people who are walking away from the faith, leaving it, deconstructing it to the point that there is no faith left. And to this church, he says, be faithful under pressure. To the church at Pergamum, fight the battle for truth. They had become overly tolerant. They had sort of presumed upon the grace of God. So their danger was libertinism. And this is a faith that's sort of the opposite of legalism that says, well, you know what? We're saved. We're good. We're into heaven. So now we can live however we want. No, it hasn't. That faith has not understood the grace of God. You've got to fight the battle for truth. Don't allow things to creep in. Similar to that, the church at Thyatira, the message to them is to abandon other lovers. They were guilty of syncretism. And syncretism is basically to hedge your bets by not only worshiping Jesus and practicing your faith, but attaching to it other beliefs, other faith practices that are incompatible with the truth of Scripture. 
and the central message of the gospel. This is syncretism. It is to join together two things that do not belong together. To the church at Sardis, the message is to follow through on your faith. He says you, haven't, you have no works, there's no evidence, there's no fruit. And so I would say their danger was believism, a kind of pure believism, which says I believe in God and that's enough. Well, it's not. Because a true belief, if we truly believe in God and we truly believe in the truth of Scripture, life transformation will come. There will be an evidence of that fruit or of that faith in the fruit of our lives. The fruit doesn't save us, but it demonstrates that our faith is real. And he says, look, to this church, you haven't followed through on the faith. And then to the church at Philadelphia, he says, hold fast and walk through. This church, he says, you're weak. You're weak. You're worn down. But don't give up. We see that message so many times in the New Testament to the churches. Paul and others, John, they're writing and they're saying, look, friends, I know that life is hard. I know you're facing challenges, but don't give up. Keep going. Don't grow weary in doing good deeds. Don't grow weary in following Jesus, of doing the things that you know that you are called to do. Finally, the last church is the church at Laodicea. It's worth noting that while the message to most of these churches is a mixed bag of challenge and comfort, he says, you're doing these things well, good job, here's the things that you need to work on. Most of the churches get a mixed message. There's a few that get only encouragement, only comfort, like the church at Philadelphia. They were weak, right? Maybe that was a criticism, but really the word to them is only comfort. When we come to the last of the seven churches, Laodicea, they only get challenge. You don't want to be this church because there's nothing specifically positive said about this church. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't anything good, but it's striking that out of the seven, the last one, this church only received challenge and no comfort. This might be the most well-known of the seven messages to the church, perhaps because it's longer, it's a little more detailed, but I think it's partly because of the powerful words and images In particular, this phrase, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now this has become a sort of well-known evangelistic refrain. And maybe there's some truth there, but we have to keep in mind, these messages were written primarily to believers, to the church. So this, this church is one where Jesus is seen here on the outside. He's knocking on the door. He's outside the door, and yet... We've seen that John says Jesus is in the middle of the churches, but not this one. It's striking language. So we have to understand what is happening here at this church. So in the city of Laodicea, the context of this church, they were known for three things. One, it was a banking center. This afforded lots of wealth, independence, but it made the city very prideful. In fact, one particular uh, incident has occurred where there was a natural disaster in the area, and they were one of a few cities that refused help from the central government, from Rome, right? They said, we don't need any help. We're fine here. They were very prideful. They they had this spirit of independence, and that was partly because they were a banking center, okay? Secondly, they were a medical center. They had good health care, and they were known for a particular eye ointment. Does that language sound familiar from the verse that Colin just read? It talks about an eye salve because this, this whole message to them was structured around these three areas of pride for this city. 
They were a medical center. Thirdly, they were a clothing center. They were known, especially for these tunics that were made of black wool that was very soft and was very luxurious. So they were a center of industry and clothing. So if I could summarize, they were known for health and wealth and power influence. Because after all, what's fine clothing except to be a status of our influence and that we have arrived? Power, health, and wealth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You ever lived in a context like that? I think we can find solidarity and commonality with each of the churches in Revelation. But if we're honest, I think we certainly find ourselves in this church in Laodicea. Or at least it is our context. In many ways, we are living in a modern-day Laodicea. We have great wealth. We have great influence in the world. We have great health care. We've, we've been blessed. There are many blessings. We live in a wonderful place. Don't hear me complaining. But with those privileges come challenges, unique challenges to a context like the one we're living in. This was a place that was known for their pride, for their self-reliance, and that can only lead to self-righteousness. And Jesus addresses their issue head on. He begins by the reminding them of who he is in light of who they are. He stacks up three titles as though he were making a case specifically against their self-reliance. He reminds them of three things in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. So first Jesus says, I am the Amen. This word has kind of come to mean nothing more than the period at the end of our prayers, right? That's just how we hang up the phone when we're dialing heaven, is we say amen. But if you think about this word, it was weighty. In the original Hebrew context of, of it, the origins of this word, it meant something that was valid and trustworthy and binding. To say amen, it was the seal of trustworthiness. Saying amen was saying that it was utterly trustworthy. And Jesus says, I am the Amen. Not just the last word, but the reliable word, the trustworthy foundation of life. He is the real deal. What he says, we can take it to the bank. Second, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. He's the true revelation of the Father, the genuine, authentic witness of the truth. John recorded these words of Jesus in chapter 14 of his gospel. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Elsewhere, he recorded, I and the Father are one. He says to these prideful, arrogant, self-righteous people, don't you forget that I am the true word. I am the faithful one. I am the faithful witness. I am the one who bears witness to who the Father is and His character. Finally, he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. And the word beginning, it doesn't mean first in a sequence. It means to be the very source of the sequence. It's the word that Paul uses at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians. It doesn't mean that he was the first one to be born or created, but rather he is the source from which all things come. And Jesus is reminding this church that everything has its origin in him. Everything was predestined to be conformed to his image. That that the destiny of every cell of life is to be like Jesus. That all things were created by him and through him and for him. And this knowledge ought to lead to wholehearted surrender and devotion. But for this church, it hadn't. They developed a posture of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, and pride. And this is why Jesus says, 
I am nauseated. I am sick to my stomach. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now we have to understand this metaphor here because it's frequently misinterpreted and misapplied. Jesus is not saying, I wish that you were spiritually cold because that's a better position than being spiritually lukewarm. No, Jesus never would encourage us towards spiritual indifference. What is Jesus saying? Well, despite being very wealthy, this city had at least one major weakness. It had no adequate source of fresh drinking water. And so by means of aqueducts, it got water from a set of hot springs nearby. But by the time the water reached the city, it would have cooled to lukewarm temperatures. The water was so distasteful to visitors that people would actually vomit after drinking the water in the city if they were coming from out of town. It's better to understand this meaning. You are neither hot healing water for the spiritually sick nor cold refreshing water for the spiritually thirsty. Neither hot healing water for the spiritually sick nor cold refreshing water for the spiritually thirsty. You are useless and distasteful. You do not adequately represent the life-transforming power of the gospel. Because of that, you are lukewarm water. You are like the waters of your city that are lukewarm and cause people to vomit. His message is very striking. And yet, like so many times, I think that we can understand the truth of what Jesus is saying, but not catch the posture or the tone of it. And here's the thing. I don't think Jesus is saying, Church, you make me sick. I hate your stinking guts. Wasn't that from Little Rascals? I don't know. That, no, not at all. There's no disdain. There's no cold indifference. It's not a harsh word. Here's what I think the posture of Jesus is. Have you ever had this experience or you've observed that, that sometimes when we observe something really terrible or we hear some bad news, we, we see something on the news, or we people in our life that we love, we watch them walking into things that we know are bad for them, and it just makes us sick to our stomach. In fact, that can actually be the visceral reaction. Sometimes if you experience trauma, it can cause you immediately to vomit. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to say here. He, he's playing on the city and he understands their water and how disgusting it is. But I think the posture of what he's saying is that as I watch you doing this church and falling into this pattern of self-reliance and self-righteousness and thinking that you don't need me because you think you have everything you need because you're rich and powerful and you have good health care and you have all the things you need, you're not understanding how desperately you need my grace what it looks like to surrender to my will and my ways. And it makes me sick to my stomach to watch you do that, church, because there's something better. It's that feeling that we get when we see people doing things that are not what is best for them. Jesus is distraught over this church because they were self-reliant and they were self-righteous. So continuing in verse 17, he uses imagery and illustrations that would have hit them right between the eyes, right where they lived. He exposes their spiritual deception and their desperation. They were trying to live without Jesus. They believed in him, but they were living like functional atheists, 
Like, okay, Jesus, thanks for doing your part. Now I'll live the rest of my life. I'm fine now. I have everything I need. They were comfortable. They were complacent. They were self-satisfied. It's a place of spiritual apathy. It can happen to any of us. city was known for wealth and medicine and nice clothing but spiritually speaking look at the language there jesus says you are poor you think you're rich spiritually you are impoverished you think you're healthy think you have good health care no actually you're spiritually sick and you're dying you think you're well clothed church no you're actually naked spiritually you're deceiving yourself Jesus knows this church well. This was not a generic letter. He is specifically pointing at those points at which the church and the culture of the church had been influenced by the city around it. And they were living according to those values rather than the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus is lovingly calling them out because he's concerned for their complacency of their hearts. Can't help but think of the ways that Jesus is deeply concerned for the church in America. And I speak to that just because that's the context that I'm in. He's deeply concerned in many ways for all the churches out there. But let's make it more specific. What are the ways that Jesus might be concerned for us here at Kirk of the Hills? What are the ways that we have become complacent? We've become self-reliant. We fail to surrender to his will and his ways. And listen, don't hear, hear this rebuke, this correction as heavy laden, as mean or indifferent. It's because of his deep, deep love for us. And he warns us. Jesus offers them something better in exchange for each of their conditions. They thought they were wealthy and important and independent. And Jesus says, you're poor and naked and sick. But he says, I want to offer you true spiritual gold. I want to offer you better clothing than your fancy black wool garments. I want to offer you the clothing of righteousness. I want you to receive spiritually, spiritual healing for your weak and your weary souls. To have a healed and renewed vision for life. And the focus of his offer ultimately is himself. This is what he offers. He says, open the door. Let me in i will come and have fellowship with you verse 19 those whom i love i rebuke and i discipline so be earnest and repent that's the solution we're back to the prophets we're back to the seven deadly sins we're back to the same thing what is the solution the solution is repentance to admit those areas where we're weak and we failed and to turn away from them and to turn back jesus says here i am i stand at the door and knock He doesn't stand back passively and say, you know what, I'm just going to let them sit in the middle of this mess and figure it out on their own. No, he comes to us. He always takes an active role to bring his grace to us. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And listen, in that context, to eat with someone, that was a big deal. You didn't just sit at the table with anybody. They were very selective. That was a very personal thing to sit at someone's table jesus says if you'll repent of your ways i will come and sit at the table and have fellowship with you i will be with you jesus is on the outside looking in 
Another preacher in another era entitled his sermon on this text, The Church with Christ on the Outside. Here's the thing, friends. Lord, help us. Would we not be that church? Would we be a church where Jesus is at the center of all that we do? That he is truly at the center of our worship. And he's at the center of every small group meeting and every Bible study and every strategy session and every goal and every aspiration that we have, that he would be at the center. And we would not be, which can happen if we don't realize it, we would not be a church that misses the whole point and does a lot of things and is really busy and Jesus is not at the center of any of it. It can happen. So may we hear these words written many years ago. May we see Jesus high and lifted up. May we not just with our voices, but but in reality, recognize that Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the head of this church. He is at the center of it all. Lord, help us to see Jesus walking among us and in our midst and not standing on the outside of the door saying, church, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm standing out here in the cold. The remedy is earnest repentance. Earnest repentance. Turn away from self-sufficiency and pride to see our true spiritual poverty and lay ourselves before Jesus in humble surrender. That is the particular burden that we have, friends. We are living in a very wealthy and powerful and influential place. That is our context. And Jesus said it's hard, not impossible, but hard to be rich and to receive the kingdom of God. Because when you think you have all you need, it's hard to see your need. We have to see our need, friends. And that's not a one-time transaction. That is every day to wake up and to be amazed by the grace of God, to be awed and humbled, and that our pride would be crushed by a vision of Jesus Christ, the victorious one, In verse 21, the vision ends this way, this message to this church. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. What? Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, there's uh, this cult, this offshoot sort of of Christianity, and they make this promise that if you uh, do all the right things at the end of your life, well, if you're a man, you get your own planet and you get to rule and reign over it. And guess what, friends? That's not how it works. (laughs) That's not how it works. You're never going to get your own planet, your own universe. You're never going to be ultimately in charge. But what is cool here that Jesus says, and it blows my mind, and we don't totally know what this means, but Jesus says to the one who is victorious, we will sit on the throne with Jesus, with him, co-heirs, co-reign. We will be given authority and influence in the kingdom of God. We will sit right next to Jesus. We do not belong to sit on that throne. In fact, just a few weeks ago, preached about the sermon, the sermon on the throne, right? You're not on the throne of your life. But when things come full circle, one day you'll get to sit side by side with Jesus on a throne you don't deserve to sit on. And what an incredible place, but, but to sit side by side or to sit in the lap, right? If you're, a, if you're a young child, what better place than to sit with or to sit on the lap of a grown-up that loves you and cares for you. That is an incredible place to be. One day we will sit on the throne with 
Jesus. He promises us himself. It's about fellowship and about relationship. So Lord, may we have ears to hear what you are saying to the churches, and we are included in that. Let us hear your voice, know your voice, listen and follow, repent earnestly, find true spiritual life in you, to turn away from our self-reliant, complacent, spiritually impoverished ways. Father, teach us to live and to feast upon your daily bread. God, humble us. Make us into your church, a shining and radiant bride. And you'll get all the glory for it. Will you join me as we pray about these things? Father God, we thank you for this important message to us. And God, help us to see that we are in many ways like that church. That is our context. That is our particular challenge. So God, help us by your grace to be a place where Jesus is at the center of all that we do. Father, forgive us for all the ways and all the times that we have not lived consistently with that reality. Because Father, we want to have fellowship with you. We want to rule and reign as co-heirs under the ultimate authority of King Jesus. God, we know we're not going to get there or even close to there this side of heaven, but would you help us every day by the power of your Spirit to align our lives with that theological vision? And God, would you take away all of those faults and competing visions that we have or that influence us from the outside? God, help us to see life for truly the way that you have called us to live. It'll be for our good and your glory. Amen.